Um, I know for some of you, Easter might feel like, wow, that was a long time ago. Easter was just a week ago, and I wanted to start this just by saying, I, I think sometimes, especially for those of us who have been in and around church for a long time, you might have approached Easter this year and, and had big expectations. So like, all right, Easter, maybe, it, maybe you had an expectation of God doing something big in your life because Easter Sunday is a big holiday, or maybe you had big expectations that God was going to do something big in your friend's life who you brought along with you or something big in our church. Um, and we believe God did do a lot of stuff last week. And I just want to say as we approach this week, it, it can be easy for us to think, well, it, it's at the big events like that that God really does stuff. I want to say, we are back again on another Sunday morning. And by the way, do you know why the church historically has met on Sunday? Because Jesus rose on a Sunday. Every Sunday morning is Easter Sunday. We gather together, and, and just even the idea that, that sometimes we could think, well, it's, it's in those big events that God works. God loves to do big things through really unexpected beginnings. You know, King David was the youngest of seven brothers and was a shepherd in a remote town. And he ended up being the king of Israel. Moses was a stuttering shepherd in the wilderness. He was 80 years old and he led the people out of Egypt. Jesus was born in a manger. As we approach each Sunday, we get the opportunity to approach it with big expectations that the God who raised Jesus from the dead is very much at work. So if you're looking at last week and being like, last week was a big week, last week was a big week. This week is a big week because the same God is still at work. And I just want to pray for us again as, as we get ready to get into the scriptures. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for the announcement that Christ has been ris risen from the grave. Thank you for the news Thank you for the grace that you've shown us. Thank you that you're a God who even pays attention to us because that's not something that we deserve in any way. Thank you for your goodness and grace. We pray for your work in us, in our church, in our community, in our world. Lord, we pray for you to speak to us and we pray for you to give us ears to listen to you and hearts to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of my favorite movies of all time is the movie Apollo 13, which I you know a lot of you know about, and, and at least even if you haven't seen the movie, you probably know a little bit about the story behind it, about the Apollo 13 mission, which in the aftermath was described by some as a successful failure. Because it was a failure because they never ended up making it to the moon, but it was successful because they were able to safely get the astronauts home, even though all sorts of things had gone wrong on the journey. And one of the things that I love in, in the film is towards the end, as they're, they're looking to try to get the astronauts to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, they cut to all sorts of different scenes where they show people watching the TV to wait to see what's going to happen. Because there's a lot that could go wrong. You know, the, it could turn out that the parachutes don't deploy. It could turn out that the heat shield doesn't hold up. There's, there's all kinds of things that could go badly. So they're showing the family members and they're showing all that, the, the people at NASA watching and one of the scenes that they go to is the son, the teenage son of one of the astronauts, and he's watching. He's at a military academy, so he's watching with all of his classmates and with his teacher. And I just want you to imagine, say, all right, so, so imagine that this kid is here and he's thinking about, am I going to see my dad again? Is my dad going to survive this reentry? Am I still going to have a dad at the end of this whole sequence? Now, now, just imagine, this doesn't happen in the movie, but imagine that this then happened. Imagine that the teacher went over in all of this drama and turned off the TV. 
and said, all right, here's what we're going to do. I mean, we, we could watch this, but we don't really have any control over this event. So instead of watching this, here's what we're going to do. I brought in an expert, and this person is an expert on how you deal with stressful situations. So he's going to talk to us about how we handle this sort of thing. And the expert gets up and he says, I've got some help. You know what? Whatever's going to happen, you're going to face stressful situations in your life. So I've got some breathing exercises for you to help you handle that. I've got some kind of positive visualization that, that you can do in situations like this. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the power of positive thinking and how that influences these situations. And he just kind of one by one starts going through and talking about how to handle challenging situations. If you're in that classroom, especially if you're that kid, if you're that teenager waiting to find out what happens, the entire time the expert's speaking, what are you thinking? Yeah, turn the television back on. I don't care right now about your system. I don't care right now about your ideas. I don't care about all that you're saying about what I should do. What I care about is what happened. And if you were that kid, you would also probably be saying, once I know what happened, I'll kind of know what to do. I'll know whether I should cry. I'll know whether or not I should smile. I'll, I'll figure it out. The most important thing right now is not this system or idea. The most important thing right now is what's happening. Now, I want to transition this to, to talk about when we talk about the Christian faith or even when we talk about religion in general. Um, often when we use the word religion, what we're using it to mean is um, sort of what we're supposed to do what human beings should do. This is why I think there are people that say that religions are all the same. It's not a true statement. But if they're looking at it from the standpoint of religion exists to tell us how to behave, then, then it's not an outlandish statement because there is a lot of carryover from different religions. Um, you know, about things, you know, stealing and murder and things like that are bad and generosity and forgiveness, those things are good. So, so you would see some carryover if you were strictly looking at it as a system of morality or, your, or sort of a system of belief and reverence towards God. But what we're going to discover in, in this and the three weeks afterwards as we get into this series called What is the Gospel? What is the gospel? What is the central message of the Christian faith? We're going to see that at the center of the Christian faith is not a code of ethics, not a system of belief, not a code for morality. At the center of the Christian faith instead is an announcement. In fact, let me put it this way. The gospel is not about what we should do. The gospel is about what God did. The gospel is not centrally saying, how do we respond to this? The gospel is primarily saying, what is it that happened? What is it that God did? And once we understand what God did, things are going to become a lot more clear about how we should respond to that. Now, th this week in some ways is going to be a little bit of a, a, a kickoff to this series as we're going to get to get into that whole idea of what the gospel itself is. But, but let me say something as, as a little bit of a warning as we get into this. Um, that there's some of you in here, and I hope, uh, we, we've been praying, that some of you in here are people who showed up last week and you're, you're not regulars here or you're maybe not regular at church at all, but you decided to come out on Easter and that you're back this week. And maybe you're even just kind of exploring. Um, you know, you're, you're not sure if you're going to be a Christian. You're not sure what all is at the center of all of this. For you, this is a great week to be here because you are going to get to hear a message that's all about what is at the center of our faith and may even clear up some misconceptions that you have in, in looking at Christians. 
But, but I want to give a warning because there might be some of you that are like, we're doing a series called What is the Gospel? I, I, think, I've, I, I think I know this. Like, I, I, I think I've got that. I think I've moved on from that. That's sort of Christianity 101. I've, I've been at this for a while. Here's what I want to say to all of you. We never graduate from the gospel. We never move on from the gospel. The gospel, and this is what we're going to talk about, especially uh, in the coming weeks. The gospel is not something that just we believe in order to become a Christian and then we move on to other things. The gospel is the center of not only how we're saved, but of how we live our lives. And one of the things that often happens to us, even those of us that might feel like, well, I've been at this for a while, is we find ourselves drifting in our hearts to a different way of approaching God than through the gospel. This series is going to be an opportunity for us all to come back to the center, to bring ourselves to the center of the faith. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through a passage in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have a Bible, you can open up 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. I am also going to have the verses up here on the screen for us to look at, but it'll help if you have an open Bible because I'm going to allude to some things in, uh, in other books of the Bible. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, we're going to talk about this. And the Apostle Paul is going to lay out three things. He's going to make three statements about the gospel to help us get our heads around this. And the first thing that he's going to say in the opening verses, in verses 1 through 2, is the gospel is vital. Now, here's what this means. What this means is the gospel is not simply one thing of many things that you believe. Believing the gospel is not secondary to your approach to life. The gospel is vital. The gospel is the center. So here's what Paul says, starting in verse 1. And and if you are looking up at the screen, you're going to see I have different verbs highlighted. So we'll kind of talk those through because that's instructive about what the gospel is. Paul says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you. All right, the gospel is something that can be proclaimed. I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you, which you received. It's preached, it's received. And then he says, and on which you have taken your stand. We'll come back to that in a couple minutes. Then he says, by this gospel, you are saved. You are rescued. You are delivered. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. The gospel is something that's proclaimed. It's something that's received. It's something that's believed. It's something that you take your stand on. It's something that saves you. All all this, and and at the very least, we can say, all right, there's a simple point here. What Paul is saying is the gospel is not just a system. The the gospel is a message. There's some kind of message that's at the core of this. The message that Paul is proclaiming, a message that people are receiving and believing, a a message that saves us. And I want to actually just peek into verse 3. We'll we'll get more into verse 3 in the next part. But Paul also says in verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And, and here's why I wanted to, to draw our attention to that. What Paul says in that short verse or that short per- portion of the verse is he says, the gospel is not something I made up. It's not something I came up with. I'm not just this great religious thinker and it wasn't that a bunch of religious thinkers got together and came up with their best thoughts about God and came up with the gospel. Paul says, I received it. I passed it on to you. In fact, Paul says in in another portion of Scripture that he received it, not from another human being. He received it from God. He received it through Jesus telling him this message. 
And there's, I want to read some verses out of Galatians, because in Galatians chapters 1 and 2, Paul talks. He talks autobiographically, and he talks about what it was like when he first embraced the gospel. And then he talks about an account where he went to Jerusalem, and he went to confer with other apostles, with, with, with other men that were right at the center of the faith. In fact, men like John and James and Peter, who had walked with Jesus and been with him during his life, because that wasn't true of Paul. And he says this starting in verse 6. And actually, you'll love this first verse because it shows a little bit of Paul's personality. He says, As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. I just love that. He's like, yeah, I went to see these guys, John, Peter, James. I don't really care. People thought they were a big deal. I don't really care. God doesn't show favoritism. And then he says this about his meeting with them. He says, They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, to the non-Jews, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. And it says, James, Cephas, and John, and Cephas is just another name for Peter. So James, Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. So here's what Paul says. Paul says, well, I was going around telling people what I thought was the core message about Jesus. I was going around telling people the gospel and then it occurred to me that I should go and talk to the other apostles And make sure we're saying the same thing. So he goes to these men. He lays out. He says, this is what I've been telling people. And he says, they had nothing to add. They said, hey, that's what we've been telling people. In fact, the message to the Jewish people is the same as the message to the non-Jewish people. It's all the same message. Paul goes and interacts with them. And he says, well, this isn't something that I made up. And this isn't something that they made up. We're all in agreement. This is a message that was delivered to us and we're passing it on. Which at the very least, Paul is just making this point. He's saying, I'm not out to get a bunch of followers of Paul. I'm not out to get a lot of Paulettes. I apologize if anybody's name is Paulette. I'm not picking on you. (laughs) All I did is he's like, I'm not here to get a bunch of followers of me. And this is true for all of us on staff here. We're not here here to get a bunch of followers of Dan or Gary or any of us. I I joke sometimes with the, the... the team that plans this service, I always say, you know, in the Christian faith, originality is not the highest value. Each week I get up here and I try to say things that people have been saying for 2,000 years. <laughs> it's funny because some of you sometimes after a message, you know, when I've taught on something, you'll say, oh gosh, I never would have seen that. And I always want to say, yeah, you would. It's right there. <laughs> like I'm not making this up. Like maybe I saw it because I had the luxury of looking at it a lot during the week, but you would have seen that. It's right there. I'm not making stuff up. Paul's saying, I I didn't make this up. I'm not trying to get followers from some message I created. It was given to me. I passed it along. Now, a couple other things about this that highlight the fact that Paul says, all right, this, this is not just a message. It's a vital message. First of all, he says, this is the gospel on which you have taken your stand. Now, now just think about it this way. Some of you have been at, at, parties or at events where they'll play a game. It'll be sort of a quiz game where they'll ask you a multiple choice question. And then you're supposed to go stand in a certain section of the room based on what answer you choose. So like if we were doing it in here and and we're not, I'm not going to ask you to get up in case you're like, oh no, what's he going to do? 
I'm not going to do that. But, but let's say I said, all right, here, here's what we're going to do. Uh, the question is, who won the Super Bowl this last year? And so if you think it was the Steelers, go over to that part of the room. If you think it was the Patriots, come over to that part of the room. If you think it was the Eagles, sorry, Don, come to that part of the room. Um, and then you would all get up and you would go and stand where, wherever you think the answer is. And so, you know, if you were over here, you'd say, I'm taking my stand on the fact that it was the Steelers or on the fact that it was the Patriots or on the fact that it was the Eagles. And you would win or lose that game based on where you take your stand. Here's what Paul is saying. You have taken your stand on the gospel. And that's not going to determine whether or not you win or lose a game. That's going to determine that's going to determine where you stand with God. That's going to determine heaven or hell for you, life or death. You have taken your stand on the gospel. You said, this is where I stand. I'm banking on this message being true. And if it's true, I'm saved. If it's not true, I'm condemned. He says, you've taken your stand. And then the next thing he says is, by this gospel, you are saved. Now, we're going to get into this a little bit more when we transition to, to verses 3 through 8. But, but just as a preview on this, this, this is one of the things I mentioned at the beginning about how some people will say all, all religions are basically the same. The reason why all religions are not the same is because religions have different conceptions about what mankind's main problem is. So if you think mankind's main problem is just that we need some moral guidance then you can look at the different religions and say that there's not as much diversity as you would think. But what Paul is saying here is, according to the Christian message, according to the gospel, your core problem is not that you need more information. Your core problem is not that you need a system of morality. Your core problem is that you need to be saved. You need to be rescued. As we're going to see, that rescue has to do with us being reconciled to God. Paul says, this, this is not something you just add on to your life. If, if you're here, and maybe for some of you, you, you've even been around church for a long time. But your attitude is sort of like, well, I'm, I'm an American. And, you know, I'm, I'm a mom or a dad. And I'm a worker. And I'm, you know, the, this or that. And these are the different things that are true of me. And I'm also a Christian. Because I think that helps me be a better American and a better mom and a better dad and a, a better husband or wife and a better worker and a better citizen. Paul is saying that, that that's not what this message is. This message is not just determining one of many things that are true of you. This is where you take your stand. This is how you are saved. This is the center of your life. The gospel is vital. And as we transition to verses 3 through 8, he, he's going to get more into the actual content of the gospel. So he starts by saying, all right, the gospel is vital, but to put it very simply in this middle section, what he's going to say is the gospel is news. The gospel is not a system of belief. The gospel is an announcement. In fact, some of you know that the, the Greek word gospel literally means what? Good news. If it's good news, then it's news. It's an announcement, not about something we're supposed to do, but about something that happened. And as Paul lays it out in verse 3, he says exactly that. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. And, and it will, I'll include verses 6 through 8 in, in a moment in going through this. But you just look at that right there. 
Paul doesn't say, here is the gospel, 10 things you're not supposed to do and 10 things you need to believe. He says, here's the gospel, a bunch of stuff happened. Christ died, according to the scriptures. Christ was buried. Christ was raised, and then a bunch of people saw him. That's the core of the message. It's an announcement. It's news. It's not a system of belief. It's not a system of morality. And we'll talk more about later on. It certainly has major implications about what we believe and what we do. But at the core, the gospel is news. It's an announcement. And let's just walk through that news. So, so he starts by saying, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. We just talked in verse two, he says, by this gospel, you are saved. This is how we're saved. This is how we're rescued. And this is what we're saved from. She so might've heard that and said, well, we're saved. What does that mean? The angel, when he appeared to Joseph, Jesus' father, before Jesus was born, says, Mary's going to have a baby. You're going to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. We are saved from our sin. What that means is we're saved from the guilt of things that we've done wrong, where we deserve condemnation. It means we're saved from the darkness of living in sin. It means that we're reconciled to God as, as his children. It means that we're forgiven. Christ died for our sins. He died as our substitute. He was condemned so that we could be received. He was cast out so that we could be welcomed in. He died so that we could live. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And, and let me just put this in. It, it, uh, in week three, we'll get deeper into this whole idea of, of the rescue idea in the gospel. But I'll just say now, I, I think that the most, the most countercultural aspect of the gospel for our culture today is the idea I'm talking about right now. The idea that our core problem as human beings is not psychological or economic or physical or health or anything like that. But our core problem is that we have guilt before God. Our core problem is that we're estranged from God because of that guilt. That our sin isn't just mistakes or flaws or, or sort of weird things about ourselves. Our sin is active rebellion against the God of the universe. And that that act of rebellion leads us to a place where we're condemned before that God. And our only hope is that he does something about it. And Paul says, here's the gospel. He did something about it. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Then he says, and he was buried. You know why that matters? Because that's what happens to dead people. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And then he was buried and then he was raised. Now, the reason the buried is in there, and I think this is really significant, is that Paul wants there to be no confusion that he's speaking metaphorically. He's not saying, well, Christ died, and of course we all die, but, but Christ was raised in the sense that he lives on as we adopt his teaching and keep his memory alive in our hearts. By the way, maybe I'm being a little mean in saying this, that's something that you will never ever hear me say at a funeral. We will keep them alive in our hearts. What you will hear me say at a funeral of any believer is, they will be raised physically again one day if they are with Jesus. He died, and you know what happens to dead people? They get buried, and then he was raised from the dead. Jesus' resurrection, it, it means many things, but it means at least two things. And here are the two things that I want you to have in mind. To the, to the early apostles, the first thing that it meant was simply, Jesus is Lord. 
They said, all right, we don't necessarily understand all the implications and we're sorting this out, but if Jesus was raised from the dead, then that means that God is the one who raised him. That means that he's Lord. That means that we listen to him. That means that we follow him. That means that we take him seriously and we honor him. Jesus is Lord. And the second thing that it meant was this, that there was a possibility of victory over death because Jesus had been victorious over death. Let me read you something that Paul says just later on in the same chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 20, uh, yeah, in verse 20, he says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And the whole concept of the first fruits was, all right, the harvest starts to come in and you see the first of it. And when you see the first part of the harvest, that's the indication of more to come. What Paul says is Jesus was physically raised from the dead, the indication of more to come. He says he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And that's the euphemism for Christians who have died. Jesus' resurrection means his, he is Lord, and Jesus' resurrection means that he's conquered death, and we can conquer death because we're with him. So, all right, Jesus died, he was buried, he was raised from the dead according to the scriptures, and then he says, and then he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. So he started appearing to people. In fact, it's not just these people that he appeared to. He goes on in verse 6. Verse 6, he says, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And we don't know exactly what event Paul is talking about here. Some people think it's the account in Acts chapter 1 where where he eventually ascends and he gives kind of a final charge to his apostles. Um, And that's that's possible, but we're not 100% sure. But I love what Paul says here. He says, all right, he appeared to 500 people all at the same time. So this is apart from other appearances. And he says, all right, some of them are dead. Some of them have fallen asleep, but some of them are still living. And when he says that, you know what he's inviting people to do? It's like, hey, go ask around. They're still here. They'll tell you. They saw him. This isn't a metaphorical resurrection. He says, he appeared to all these people and some of them are still around. You can go ask him yourself. And he says, then he appeared to James. This is Jesus' half-brother. Then he appeared to all the apostles. And, and I'll, I'll just say this real quick because this will play into what Paul says in verses 9 through 11. An apostle, in case you don't know, an apostle is not the same thing as a disciple. A disciple just means somebody who follows somebody else. So the disciples of Jesus were more than just the 12. They, they were a wide range of people, men and women, all sorts of people who followed Jesus. But the apostles were people who had been especially commissioned by Jesus. Apostle just means a one who is sent. So, so these are the people that you think of, the, the, the original 12. And then at the very least, it, it broadens out to the apostle Paul, maybe Barnabas. People aren't 100% sure. But, but this is kind of a select group of people. All right, so he appeared to the apostles also. And then he says in verse 8, And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. That seemed like a weird thing to say right there. It's one abnormally born. And people actually debate, trying to figure out what what is the exact meaning of what he says. And it's not clear exactly what he means when he says, as to one abnormally born. But it is clear that he means this. He doesn't mean it as a compliment to himself. He means it in a sense of saying, I'm not like these other guys. I didn't really deserve this. Like they, these guys were with Jesus, they were following Jesus, you know, they, they were with him in his life, they were sort of around at the appropriate time. I got a resurrection appearance later on. And this is going to play into the third area that Paul's going to talk about, where, where he talks about the whole idea 
of what the gospel does in our lives. But before getting into that, let let me just give one last comment on this whole idea of the gospel being news. If the gospel is news, here's what this means. This means that your behavior this week doesn't change the foundation of your faith. It's easy for a lot of us to think, especially in relating to God, think, well, I I think this week I feel pretty good about approaching God with my prayers and with my thoughts and with reading my Bible and praying. I feel pretty good about that. And you know why I feel pretty good about that? I've had a pretty good week. I didn't really give into temptation very much. was pretty kind to people around me. I even donated some money to charity. I, I feel pretty good about this whole thing. And there are other times that we think, I don't really feel good about approaching God right now. I don't really feel good about it because I, you know, I, I did some things that I shouldn't have done or I looked at some things I shouldn't have looked at or I spoke rudely to somebody. And you know, like, I, I, just, I, I feel like I really shouldn't do that. Whenever we do that, what we're assuming is that our relationship and our connection with God is based on our performance. What Paul is saying right here is our approach to God is based on on a performance, but not your performance. It's based on the performance of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and how you performed this week doesn't change how he performed 2,000 years ago. The basis for our faith is not something we've done, but something that God did. But Paul ends the section by saying, well, I got a resurrection appearance, but I probably really shouldn't have. I, I'm not like these other ones. And, and he's going to tell us about that in verses 9 through 11 when he tells us that not only is the gospel vital and not only is the gospel news and announcement, but the gospel is transformational. I spent some time this morning saying, you know what? The gospel is not about us performing before God. It's not about what we should do. And some of you might even be thinking, but, but we're still supposed to act a certain way, right? We're, we're, we're still supposed to, to, to not be cruel to each other. Our behavior is supposed to change. Well, that's what Paul is going to talk about here. He's going to talk about the transforming effect of the gospel. So in verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So this is why I describe myself as one abnormally born. I didn't walk around with Jesus. I wasn't there. I wasn't one of his disciples. I I certainly wasn't an apostle. In fact, not only was he not in on this, he says, I persecuted the church of God. I persecuted believers in Jesus. Some of you know this about Paul's story. Some of you probably don't. Some of you probably just think, well, Paul wrote all these New Testament letters. He's like the best Christian ever. Paul says, I persecuted the church of God. And Paul, we we see him first show up right around Acts chapters 8 and 9, if you want to read about it later. And the event where he first shows up is that there's a Christian named Stephen who is publicly executed, and Paul is approving of the whole deal. Because Paul is an ardent Jew, and he is convinced that all of these people who are proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus are heretics and they need to be stamped out. So not only does he approve of Stephen being executed, he then gets official legal authority to go to other towns, find Christians, throw them in prison, and maybe oversee their execution also. And he's on his way to do that. He's on the the road to Damascus, headed to do more of this. And this is where Paul gets his resurrection appearance. This is where Jesus, in all of his glory, appears to Paul, and Paul's life is forever changed. 
Now, I, I had something funny happen a, a couple weeks ago. So uh, I'll just, as background, you need to know this. Karina uh, and I have different rules in our house. And one of the things, one of the mantras we say over and over to the kids is, we don't fight over doors. If you're going to rough house, you go outside or you go to an open space, you don't get into a tussle surrounding a door. We're careful with our doors. We don't want them to come off. We don't want them to come off the hinges. You, you got to be careful with the doors. So, so that's the background. So a couple of weeks, some of you are like, you need to tell them that? We have three sons. I'm sorry. <laughs> so a, a couple of weeks ago, I was in the living room and I heard somebody messing with the bathroom door. I sort of rolled my eyes because this happens. I sort of rolled my eyes and, and then it stopped and then it started again, and then it stopped, and then it started again, and I'm just getting more and more frustrated and upset. And so I didn't know what kid it was, but, but I kind of go around the corner, and all I said was, what's going on in there? And the door opens, and there on the floor is Karina cleaning the bathroom. <laughs> I had just yelled at my wife, and not only had I yelled at my, my wife, I had yelled at her when she was doing like the most servant-hearted thing any person can do. And the funny thing, she was so sweet about it. She's like, oh, I'm sorry that was bothering you. I was like, oh, no, 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 I'm so sorry. I didn't know it was you. I thought it was one of the kids. I thought they were messing with the door. I felt so bad. I had unintentionally, I, I treated my wife like an enemy. And we all know, if you just read any book on marriage, your spouse is not your enemy, right? Your, your, spouse, your spouse is not your enemy. We all know the kids are the enemy. And that's why you've got to be united you got to be together, otherwise the kids are going to win. So here's the point. I rounded the corner and found out, and I could have said, well, I didn't know it was her. I didn't mean to do it. I rounded the corner and found out that the person I had been yelling at was my wife. Paul rounded the corner and found out he had been persecuting God. Take that in for a minute. Think of the horror that he's going through. Because when Jesus speaks to him, Jesus doesn't say to him, why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? Paul must have thought it was all over. This is the end. He finds out. And he, and he could have said, I didn't know. I didn't mean to. I didn't know. It, it doesn't matter. Wittingly or unwittingly, he had been actively rebelling against God. And you know what, there, there might be some of you here that you say, well, when I sin, I'm not actively rebelling against God. I'm not, I'm not even thinking about God. I'm just, I'm just sort of doing something. Whether you're thinking about it or not, anytime you say, God has a path, but I have a different one, you are actively rebelling against God. And the only thing that you deserve is judgment. Paul says, I found out I was an enemy of God. And then he says this in verse 10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not without effect. He says, you know what I stand on? I stand on the gospel. I don't stand on my performance. I don't stand on my body of work. I stand on the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus died for sins, that he was buried, that he was raised, that he was seen by all kinds of people. I stand on the performance of Jesus on my behalf, because that's the only way I'm going to stand at all. By the grace of God, saying, by the grace of God, not only am I a Christian, by the grace of God, I'm an apostle. I, I'm entrusted with this message. And I love that he says, and his grace towards me was not without effect. In other words, his grace had an impact on me. This wasn't something that I just said, oh, it's great news. I'm, I'm forgiven. Now I'll just go and do whatever I want. 
His life was transformed. He says, his grace had an effect on me. In fact, and the next part is a little bit confusing because then he goes on and he says, no, I worked harder than all of them. Here's what he's saying. No, I worked harder than all of the other apostles. Which might sound kind of arrogant for a minute. You're like, why is he saying that? Here's why he's saying that. The the point that he's making here is not only by the grace of God did I become a Christian and not only by the grace of God did I become an apostle, but, but I wasn't sort of a minor apostle. I ended up having a major impact. God did major things through me. He says, no, I worked harder than all of them. In other words, saying I had a, as big an impact as any of them. I was put on equal footing with all of them. And then in case anyone thinks he's getting arrogant, he says, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. That's what was having the effect. God's grace had such a deep effect that Paul was turned into somebody who was consumed with his own glory and furtherance in the Jewish faith to somebody that spent the rest of his life allowing himself to be poured out to benefit other people. In week four of this series, we're going to spend a good amount of time just talking about that effect, the effect the gospel has on us on changing our hearts not only towards God, but towards one another. But Paul, at the very least, gives a preview of this. He's saying, you know what? If you really embrace the gospel, it's not something where you just believe this and then you go home and you go back to your habits and do whatever you want. It transforms you. It empties you of pride because you've got to the point of saying, I'm not, ba- I'm not basing my, my understanding of my, my standing with God on my own performance. It empties you on pride. It fills you with gratitude. It transforms you because you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that grace had an effect on me. And so then he says in verse 11, whether then it's I or they, in other words, whether I'm preaching the gospel to you or the other apostles are preaching the gospel to you, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. Here's the message that we gave to you. It's not something that we made up. It's something that was given to us and we passed it along and all of us said the same thing. And that's that God did something to reconcile us to himself. And our only hope of being reconciled to him It's not based on what we would do, but based on what he did. I want to say a few things as as we try to take this in, this whole idea about the gospel not being about what we should do, but about what God did. And first, I want to speak that there may be some of you that um, that you're in here and and you're very aware that that you're not a believer in Jesus. You're you're saying, oh yeah, I I wouldn't hide that. I would outright say that. I'm here at church, but I'm not a believer in Jesus. That's not what I've done right now. Um, I want to invite you to be reconciled to God. I want to invite you not to adopt a code of ethics, but to embrace what God has done in history through Jesus. To place your faith not in your own performance before God, but to place your faith in the performance of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for the new life that he offers. And if you're looking to do this, let me just give you a couple things. There's a few things you could do. You could talk to one of us outside afterwards. We'd be happy to talk to you. You can grab one of the communication cards on one of the chairs in front of you and just fill it out real quick and make a mark on there saying, I've placed my faith in Jesus. You could also join Starting Point, which we talked about last week. There's still spots for the Starting Point group that just delves into the questions about our faith. You can do one of those things. But today may be the day that you decide it's time to be reconciled to God and that's not going to happen through something you do. It's going to happen through you placing your faith in what God has done. But let me also speak to to those of us who are believers. They say, all right, no, I've done that. I I have embraced Jesus. Here's what I want to say. 
this message is not something we move on from. Day by day, we come back to the reality that the only reason why we can call God our Father is because of what Jesus has done for us. You know, the author of Hebrews says something really amazing. He says, we approach the throne of grace, God's throne, and some of you know, we approach the throne of grace with boldness or confidence. You approach God's throne with confidence. You approach God's throne acting like you belong there. Can you imagine the audacity of approaching God's throne and being like, yeah, this seems about right. (laughs) You approach the throne with confidence. And here's what I want to say. If you have been living your life saying, well, sometimes I approach the throne with confidence because I've been just knocking it out of the park that week. (laughs) You are self-deceived. You approach that throne not with confidence in your own behavior. And if sometimes you're approaching the throne or not even approaching the throne saying, well, I'm ashamed of all the things that I've done. That is almost a reverse form of arrogance because you're, you're assuming that other times when you're approaching the throne, it is based on your own performance. Every time you approach the throne and you say, here's where I take my stand. I take my stand on what Jesus has done for me. And if I feel like I'm performing great, it's almost certainly not as great as I think I am. And if I'm performing not really great at all, I have the comfort of knowing that that's why Jesus died for me. Don't live your life based on your performance. There's growth to be had. Again, next week especially, we're going to talk a lot more about this. But don't approach God based on how you think you're doing. Approach God based on your grace. Every time going to him saying, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace is changing me day by day. Before I pray, I just want to say also, after I'm done praying, there's going to be some folks up here to your right. We're going to be there and ready to pray with anyone who needs prayer today. And there may be some of you that you need somebody to pray with about things that you're wrestling through. And so as we approach that, let me pray for all of us right now. Father, thank you so much that you've given us a message that fills us with hope. Thank you so much that you've chosen not to judge us based on what we've done, but based on what you've done for us. Thank you that we can have confidence. Even right now, as a bunch of very ordinary, broken people, we can approach you with confidence because nothing that we've done has changed anything about what Jesus has done. Thank you that those of us who are believers belong in your presence, not because of our performance, but because of Jesus' performance. And Father, I pray that you break us of our pride. I pray that you break us of our our independence and of our self-sufficiency, I pray you give us the joy of knowing that we stand based on what you've done. And I pray that as we proclaim this message to others, it would not be about the great things that we've seen in our lives. It would be about the great things that you have done that bring life to all of us. We pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.